during a period of great social upheaval in Ireland, her greatest orator, Edmund Burke, made this statement. An event is happening about which it is difficult to speak, but about which it's impossible to remain silent. This morning I'm dealing with such a subject, the subject of abortion. The definition that I'm working with for abortion today is a simple and hopefully clear definition. An abortion is a humanly initiated procedure resulting in the death of an unborn human being. Today, if it's a normal day in the United States, 3,700 unborn children will be aborted. That translates into 1.37 million children who are aborted in the womb annually since Roe versus Wade, January 22, 1973. If we were to calculate all the service men and service women who have died serving our country in war, it would be essentially the same number as the unborn who will be killed in the wombs of their mothers in 2014. So in the last 41 years, when it has become legal for abortion to occur, there have been 41 times more people killed than have been killed in the wars to protect the freedom of our country. Is a person actually killed in an abortion? Is a fetus a person? The word fetus is a word which is from the Latin language, and the word fetus simply means young or suckling. It means a baby. It was used to describe babies after they'd been born and were nursing at their mother's breast. That's what a fetus is. And the language sometimes clouds the reality of children in the womb truly being people. Now, what constitutes personhood? One of the things that constitutes personhood is that a person has life. So the question we must ask, does a fetus have life? And what are the conditions to determine if something has life? There's metabolism, there's growth, and there's the ability to adapt to one's environment. Certainly that is true of an unborn baby. A fetus has all the qualities of a living being. But is it a human being? That is a big question that's been bantied about for the last 41 plus years. Is a fetus genuinely a human being? At what point does a fetus become a human being? Well, let's look at what the Bible says about that. Because in order for a person to be a person, a person has to be human by definition. Please turn with me in the Old Testament to the book of Jeremiah. We're going to look at chapter 1. And we're going to look at two verses which contain God's calling the prophet Jeremiah to be a prophet to the nations. And notice carefully what is said in the Bible about the calling of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 4 says this. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. First of all, there's a clear statement from God's side about who created Jeremiah. Who created Jeremiah? God created Jeremiah. And notice what he says, before I even formed you in the womb, I knew you. 
God had a vision of Jeremiah's being formed for the purpose of being a prophet to the nations. It's highly unlikely that anyone in this room would have such a calling upon his or her life. It's possible, but highly unlikely. But the reality is, when we look at what the Bible teaches, God has a plan for every one of us in this life. In fact, turn to your left to the book of Psalms, the 139th Psalm, which sheds further light on what God thinks, what is the theological perspective, scripturally based theological perspective, on when life begins, if a fetus is indeed a human being. Look at verse 13 of chapter 139 of Psalms. For you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. This talks about the psychological development, now the development as well as the physical development of the individual in question. And this was David, King David. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. Let me stop there just a moment. The word in Hebrew translated unformed substance means embryonic material. Now, this is pre-scientific, obviously. But we see the wisdom of God in the Word of God. And how this is revealed by the Spirit of God to David, that God was superintending every division of the zygote, which came when his father Jesse and his mother joined together in marital love. And the result was that David was conceived. Amazing. Now look at the next part of this verse. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. What does this say? It goes back to what we just saw in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is told by God, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And what does David say? God says to me, before one of the days that I ever lived came to be, you had written them out. There was a script for my life in heaven. There's a plan that God has for all of our lives. We know the Bible says it's a plan for welfare and not for calamity to give us a future and a hope in order that we might glorify him and fulfill our intended purpose on this earth. Do you know you have a time frame in which to live this life? And David is spoken of by Luke in Acts thirteen thirty six. It says, when David had fulfilled the purpose of God in his generation, he fell asleep. What would life have been like without Jeremiah? Well, we wouldn't have the book of Jeremiah. It's a book that is the longest of all the books in the Bible, and it's full of truth that's helpful to us. If you haven't read it, may I advise you to do so. I'm reading it right now in my own personal devotional life. I love reading it. I'm ministered to every time I read it. God speaks to me through it. And then what about David? What about all the Psalms we have that this man of God was used to write? We need to understand that God has a plan for us every time there's a conception. God is the one who brings it to pass. God is the one who prepares that fetus at the moment of conception, plugging in the genetic code that he pre-designed for that child so that that child can grow into an adult and bring honor and glory along the way to maturity and beyond. Well, the Bible says in other ways that the unborn child is truly a person. Let me give you Examples of this. 
in the book of Exodus, chapter 21, verses 4 and 22. If we put those side by side, if we looked at them, what we would see in chapter 21 of Exodus, verse 4, there's mention of a child still in the womb. And the word for child is used there. It's the word yaled in Hebrew. And then when you get to 22, it talks about children who are already out of the womb, infants, and the same word is used. So from God's perspective, the theological perspective, the scriptural perspective is that a child in the womb is just as much a human as a child who's outside the womb whose cord has been cut from its mother. The New Testament also uses the same word, not yaled, but a Greek word because the New Testament is written in Greek. In the book of Acts, chapter 1, more than one time, in reference to John the Baptist, while he was still in the womb, he is described by the word brephos, which means infant in most cases. A little later, in the book of Acts, chapter 7, written by the same person, Luke. Now, let me stop and remind us, what was the profession of Luke? He was a doctor. He was a scientist. He was very interested in these things. He's the only one of the gospel writers who writes about the virgin birth. He made great inquiry consulting with Mary and others about the virgin birth. He was very interested, as you might expect, because of his profession and because of his following Christ and wanting to write an accurate report of the gospel of Jesus Christ, including the virgin birth. In Acts chapter 7, verse 19, he uses this word that is applied to John the Baptist while he was still in the mother's womb, Brephos, he uses it to describe the baby Moses as he was placed in a, a little ark of bulrushes by his sister Miriam. So from the New Testament perspective, from the Old Testament perspective, a child in utero is just as much a child as a child who has been born, as we would say. It's phenomenal when we look at what the scriptures have to say. Allow me an illustration. It's said in the 15th century. It's a young teenage girl. Her name is Katerina. She is one who has an unwanted pregnancy. Her father takes her to the doctor and tells of the situation and asks what the doctor would advise about this child she is bearing and about her herself. And the doctor decides it would not be wise to take this child. He opposes the whole matter of abortion in this case. And the Hippocratic Oath, we have some doctors in the room. The Hippocratic Oath, which was developed in the 4th century A.D., has in it a prohibition against doctors performing abortions. Well, the father took the advice of the doctor who happened to be his friend, and Katerina took the baby full term, and it was born, a healthy boy. We know him as Leonardo da Vinci. What would have happened if she had aborted Leonardo? What would have happened? What are the possibilities of every child? Not every child will be a genius like da Vinci was, but every child can be used to bring honor and glory to God. Every child is valuable to God in utero or out of the womb. Every child is valuable to our God. Let's take a journey, a short journey, into the early history of the Church of Jesus Christ. There was a document that began to be circulated in the early part of the second century. It's called the Didache. The word Didache in Greek simply means teaching. 
It was the teaching of the apostles, which had been codified and was circulated among the churches to help people to know how to express their faith, how to live out their faith on a practical level, day by day. And let me read one selection from the Didache, if I may, that has to do with this matter of abortion. One line says, you shall not murder a child by abortion, nor kill them when born. Infanticide and abortion were rampant within the Greco-Roman world in which the gospel began with the coming of Christ. And it began to spread in the first and second and other centuries of this part of our history. In the second century, another believer, an apologist by the name of Athen Agoras, wrote to Marcus Aurelius, who was then the emperor. We, speaking of Christians, we say that women who use drugs to bring on abortion commit murder. For we regard the very fetus in the womb as a created being. And then a bit later, Tertullian, another church father, wrote this as an apology for what it means to follow Christ. As part of his apologetic, he said this, In our case, we as Christians, murder being once for all forbidden, we may not destroy even the fetus in the womb, while as yet the human being derives blood from other parts of the body for its sustenance. Certainly, even the early church fathers understood that the baby in the womb was a person and therefore was to be protected and brought to full term. Well, let's take a moment to shift gears. That's theological and that's biblical. But what about science? Is there a conflict between what the Bible says in this matter and science. If you're not a Bible person, you have your doubts about the trustworthiness of the Bible. And I wish we had time to talk about that. That's another sermon in and of itself. The Bible is very trustworthy. It's perfectly trustworthy, I might add. But what about science? In 1981, a Senate subcommittee called for a panel of blue-ribbon scientists in the area of genetics in life. And they put their heads together to answer this question, when does human life begin? Let me read two of the responses, one by a female physician, another by a geneticist. The female, Micheline Matthews Roth of Harvard Medical School, wrote this. It's scientifically correct to say that an individual human life begins at conception when egg and sperm join to form the zygote. When 23 chromosomes in the egg of a female are united with 23 chromosomes from the sperm of a male in conception, all 46 chromosomes are in place, and the genetic code, as I've mentioned already, is punched in. A person's color, a person's sex, all the things about us are there in one cell form. And before all is said and done, that one cell will multiply and multiply and multiply until that being has developed into 100 trillion cells. But from one cell to the 100 trillion cells, the DNA is the same. The potential is there. It's all there and it's all human. Dr. Jaime Gordon, the geneticist who was on this panel from Mayo's clinic, said, I have never read of anyone who has argued that life did not begin at conception. Now, there were other panelists who were not in sync in their thinking with these two panelists, 
but there was not one in his or her statement who contradicted the testimonies of doctors Matthews, Rost, and Gordon. In 1970, before Roe versus Wade, 11 years before this Senate panel, you may know that in 1967, abortion was legalized in California. In 1970, the California Medical Association, which not in mass but in majority, believed in the validity of abortion under certain circumstances, an editorialist by the name of Malcolm Watts wrote these words in the editorial. It has been necessary to separate the idea of abortion from the idea of killing, which continues to be socially abhorrent. The result has been a curious avoidance of the scientific fact, which everyone really knows, that human life begins at conception and is continuous, whether intra or extra uterine, until death. Scientifically, human life begins at conception. On May the 17th, 2012, Dr. Colleen Malloy, herself an assistant professor of neonatology at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine, was called to go before a House of Representatives Judiciary Committee to report on pain experience in unborn fetuses. In her report, it's an excellent report. I wish I could give all the details, but I'll hit what I think are the highlights. In the report, she said that it has been determined, and she used data from uh, two different pieces of research, one from Scandinavia, Sweden to be precise, that says that when babies are in utero at 20 weeks and they are born prematurely, 10% of those babies survive. Add one week of that to the life of a baby in utero before the baby is born, that percentage jumps from 10% to 53%. Add one more week, it jumps from 53% to 67%. Add yet another week, it jumps to 82%. And finally, on the 24th week, it jumps to 85%. That's a big jump, isn't it? But what she says, that all the research would indicate that children at 20 weeks, if they are treated with some sort of puncture, the baby reacts to it in pain. 21 weeks, certainly 22, 23, 24, it continues. The pain is there for a baby. And her conclusion was a baby in utero has the same sort of response. Just because it's in a different environment in no way eliminates the reality of pain on the part of that little human being. She said at eight weeks in the womb, Babies respond to stimuli. And do you know, I'm sure you do, that there is fetal surgery done today on babies when they're at this age of 20 weeks and so forth? In 23 weeks, there has been surgery done. And when the surgery occurs, there's anesthesia applied. Can you believe that? Why? Because doctors have determined these babies can respond to pain and it hurts them. And so these babies, according to her report, they will wince when they are pricked. They will open their mouths like babies that age outside the womb do when the same procedure. Their vital signs taken show that their heartbeat increases, their blood pressure increases. 
These children experience a lot of pain in utero, just like children outside experience pain. So it's a painful thing to the baby who is being aborted. Do you know that at 56 days, that's eight weeks, all the organs in a person's body are fully developed and functioning. The brain is functioning. The heart is pumping blood. The liver is producing red blood cells. The kidneys are cleaning the fluids. There are measurable fingerprints on a 56-day-old, eight-week-old child in utero. It's amazing. And all at 20 weeks, at 20 weeks, just a little bit longer, at 20 weeks, all the neuron receptors that link pain transmitters with pain receivers are linked up. A human being, as a 20-week human being, has the same capacity that you and I have to experience pain. But here's the interesting thing. Those pain transmitters are developed, but the pain inhibitors are not. So it's strongly possible, it's probable, it's true according to this report that Dr. Malloy gave, that the pain is more intense for a 20-week-old than it would be for a 20-year-old to have the same thing happen to that person. Now, what does that tell us? Well, we know that most of the abortions which are taking place in the United States happen after that eight-week time frame. So the pain is real, and it's violent when a baby is aborted. This is the weekend that we remember Dr. Martin Luther King, and I've often wished that he had lived a lot longer for a lot of reasons. But he died for a great cause to bring civil rights to our nation, to help people to be treated as equals, regardless of their racial or socioeconomic background. I wish he had lived long enough for Roe versus Wade to have happened. It might not have happened if he'd have lived. It might not have. Because I believe he would have been against it. And why do I say that? Because his whole mode of operation was nonviolence. And abortion is very, very violent. Is a person killed in abortion? Well, the answer is yes. Dr. Seuss, that great theologian, wrote these words. A person is a person no matter how small. From the time of conception, from the womb to the tomb. And by the way, those of us who are pro-life, we need to be comprehensive in our approach to life. Not just protecting the lives of the unborn with our prayers, with our voices. We need to protect those all the way to the end of life. Because people are valuable to God no matter what. Do you know why it's immoral to destroy any human being? It's because the image of God is marred. It's destroyed when a human is destroyed. In Genesis 1, 26, 27, and 9, 6, the Bible is very clear. Man is created in the image of God. Each human being has value regardless of the quality of life 
of that individual. People are valuable because of who they are. We, every person in this room, every person in the womb, every person in the world, bears the image of God. Therefore, God puts a premium on that person's life. God is no respecter of persons. God loves us unconditionally. And I hope you're glad. Because there's really nothing that would recommend me to God to be loved. Because after all, he demonstrated his love toward me while I was still a sinner. And his enemy, I had no interest in God. And all of a sudden, he broke into my life and he began to speak to my heart. And he began to tell me how much he loved me as revealed in the fact that he showed his love to me. And that while Christ was a perfect man and fully God, fully man, God showed his love toward me by letting Christ die and take the punishment for my sin. God's love is unconditional. God doesn't love us because we're so valuable. We are so valuable because God loves us. This is what puts us in a position of being of value. Perhaps you're familiar with the uniquely New Testament word for love, agape. And this word means the sacrifice of self in the service of undeserving others. That's God's love. We didn't deserve his love, but he showed it to us in Jesus. And that's the kind of love Christ says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you love one another. That's the kind of love we are to show who follow Christ. We have Christ in us. The Holy Spirit lives in us. And his fruit, the first aspect of it, is love. Unconditional love. Agape is non-discriminatory and seeks to build value into the object it loves, the person whom it loves. Eros is the Greek word which is typically associated with erotic love, sort of a selfish sort of grasping love. But to be fair, there is an element of that, but to really be truthful, Truly be fair, we have to look at the way in which this word is used in Greek mythology. Occasionally, it's used in a very positive way. It's used to describe the love that a hero has for a wife or children or fellow country people. And that hero is rather to lay down his life for those whom he loves because they're part of his family. But it stops there. There's no love prescribed in Greek mythology for one's enemies. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Our love for mankind is based upon God's love for us. It's an unconditional love. One of the stronger arguments for pro-abortionists is that unborn people who show little prospect for a high quality of life should be aborted. They call it eugenic abortion. And people can be so clever with words, twisting them. You know what the word eugenic means is from two Greek words. The prefix eu means well. And genic comes from the word race, genos. A well race, a good race. Do you know many people who might be considered when an amniocentesis is formed on the mother in the latter stages of pregnancy as being People who really won't be worth living and therefore are aborted. Many of these people become people who are tremendous assets to culture. Most congenitally handicapped people value life more greatly than we who are normal. Their suicide rate is much lower than ours. 
they have a desire to make a difference. One of my friends is Kenny Gann. Kenny is 55 years old. I remember when he was born. His family and my family were tight. We were great friends. And Kenny was born in October of 1958. And he had been for his first checkup. It was still warm outside in Memphis where we lived. It was what we called Indian summer there. And I remember his mother, Claudine Gann, coming to my mother and collapsing in her arms with that baby. And mother didn't know what was wrong. She was in a heap of tears. And my mother said, what's wrong? What's wrong? And she said, Kenny is Down syndrome. And the doctors said all kinds of negative things about his future. And I just can't call my husband. His name was Junior, he was called. I can't call him and tell him about this. And mother got her settled on the couch and gave her something to drink, took care of Kenny, and she called Junior Gann and told him. And he came right over. You know what? Kenny's alive today. Kenny is a productive citizen in the United States. Kenny knows Jesus Christ. He has received Christ as his Lord and Savior. He witnesses to the person of Jesus Christ. He is a person who today probably his mother would get advice to abort him rather than bring this child who would be a trouble to her into her life. He's been a blessing to her, a tremendous blessing. And he was to his father until his father passed away. Do you see where this utilitarian ethic is headed? Do you see where it's headed It smacks of Hitlerism, actually. Now, why do I say that? Well, we know the Holocaust. It was awful. I I really am even reluctant to speak of it because I have no right to speak of it because of the atrocities associated and foisted upon a whole group of people. Genocidal was this maniac, Hitler, as he tried to destroy the Jewish people. But it does speak of something that is important to us in this particular era of our own nation's history. Do you know that before 1936, when the law became in place that would allow the extermination of the Jews, before that law was in place, Hitler had already had 275,000 people put to death in killing centers. And you know what their crime was? They were insane or infirmed or aged or deformed or retarded. Some were World War I amputees who had fought for the continuation of Germany. And they were no longer useful. In fact, they were declared burdens on the culture. It cost taxpayers money to take care of those people. So let's get rid of those people and get rid of them they did. Epileptics. Bedwetters were destroyed. Polio and Parkinson's victims were put to death. They were killed to save taxpayers' money and to relieve society of the burden of these people. Their crime, they could not contribute. We who know Christ know that our value to Him is not based upon what we can produce, but because He loves us. And every human being is worth being given the opportunity to live out his or her life until it comes God's time to take him or her home. The Fifth Amendment of our Constitution says, no person shall be deprived of life without due process of law. I submit to you 
that 56 million unborn babies in the last 41 years have been deprived of their right to due process of law. And what have we done in response to that? What have I done? What have you done? I've done way too little. Turn to Proverbs chapter 24, verses 11 and 12. Proverbs 24, 11 and 12. Say this. Deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to slaughter. Oh, hold them back. If you say, see, we did not know this. This was true of so many in Germany. They didn't want to know what was going on. I'm talking about Christians in Germany. I'm not talking about people who had no association with God through Christ. Does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? And does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? We have an opportunity and an obligation to minister to people who are vulnerable and to stand up for people who have no voice. You know, these little babies don't have any voice. We can be their voice. We can speak for them on their behalf. Now, I know that bearing a child, I have never had that experience obviously, but it's a tremendous responsibility and it's at great sacrifice that any mother bears a child. And we know that part of the reading of Roe versus Wade is so designed as to indicate that the life and the health of the mother is paramount. And who would argue that? We should protect the life and health of women who are bearing children, do whatever we can to help them. Those who are pro-choice would say that a woman has a right to her own body. Well, there's no question about that. Really, God has a right to all of our bodies. But putting God out of the picture, there's no question about that. But the problem is a fetus is really not a part of the mom's body. The fetus depends upon the mom's body. But the genetics are different. The gender in half the cases is different in a baby and the womb, the blood type is often, if not most often, different than the mother's blood type. It's a whole human being in there. There have been people who say that the legalization of abortion has resulted in fewer deaths of women who have gotten back alley abortions. There's a woman in our church who came up to me last night after I had shared this message last night. And this woman has her master's degree in nursing from Tulane University. Her thesis was evaluating the difference between 1973 and 1988 for the numbers of women who died of abortion. You know what she found through meticulous, painstaking research? The numbers were identical. So the legalization of abortion didn't save women. Abortion's dangerous, ladies. It's dangerous, men. It's dangerous to the health of the one who is having the abortion. And it can result in a greater, and does in most cases, a greater possibility of not being able to bear children down the way. So, we need to understand that the abortion of a child is indeed a humanly initiated procedure resulting in the death of a, an unborn human being. So what can we do? What can we 
as followers of Christ do. You make up your own solution to that, but let me give you some suggestions. Here's one thing that we can do. It's important that we do this, I think. We can love people who have had abortions or who are contemplating having abortions or people who have a totally different viewpoint than the one that I have shared today, which is a scriptural and a scientific viewpoint. We can love people. God will use that in their lives. Andy Rooney, some of you remember him. Just a few years ago, he passed away. For many years, he was one of the commentators on 60 Minutes. He was one of the original gang who made up that most successful of all news shows in TV history. He said this, I have decided I'm against abortion. I think it's murder. But I have a dilemma in that I much prefer the pro-choice people to the pro-life people. Because we as pro-life people have been people who have maybe been ugly in our spirit toward people who are acting, in some cases, out of ignorance. I'm talking about people who go for abortions or encourage their family members to get abortions. Maybe they're acting out of ignorance. They don't know the facts. They're just taking what they've heard. We need to love people, and we need to help people come to know the grace of God through Jesus Christ who have experienced these kinds of troubles in their lives. Let me share with you what happened to Jane Rowe. That's an alias, of course, but her name is Norma McCorvey. She, after she had been the plaintiff in this case, She had the baby that she was promised by her attorneys that she would get the money to abort. She never had an abortion. But she was in in the forefront of the movement. And she became the marketing director for a family planning clinic. It was sort of a euphemism for an abortion clinic. And next door to her, a pro-life group called Operation Rescue, which was rather radical in its approach, got an office space. The director of that was a man named Flip Benham. A few months earlier, she had come out with her book, I Am Roe, telling the story. And he had been at the book signing, and he yelled out in a very loud and angry voice. He said, how dare you desecrate the lives of the 35 million babies who have been aborted because of your case? How dare you? He was so ugly. Well, he over the period of the months that intervened between the book signing and actually moving in next door to the clinic where she worked. He'd been under great conviction from the Holy Spirit for the way in which he had spoken to her. And he went to her and he said, I need to ask your forgiveness for the way that I spoke to you. I saw the hurt drop into your heart when I said those words, and I knew I was wrong. Would you please forgive me? And this is her response. She said, Nothing I had in my heart could defend the humility that man showed to me. Over the next few months, people who were associated with Operation Rescue would encounter Norma as she would walk in and out and do her work and would share the love of God, just not preaching to her, just loving on her. Do you know what? Norma McCorvey gave her life to Jesus Christ. Bernard Nathanson, who with Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan and a few others, established NARAL, which was a large pusher for what soon became Roe versus Wade. He himself, a medical doctor, presided over 75,000 abortions. He came to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. How did these people come to know Christ? 
not through some angry, red-faced pro-lifer yelling at them, cursing at them, but through people who know Jesus Christ, who love people who don't know Christ in introducing them. This is the biggest thing we can do. You know what will happen? We, we may not introduce a Bernard Nathanson or Norma McCorvey to Christ. We could. But there are people who need to know Jesus. And what I understand of what Christ has done in my life, when I received Christ, he gave me a biblical perspective, a biblical worldview. I wanted to learn what the truth is, and I began to study the truth. And it transforms me, and it continues to transform my thinking. And so if we do that with people and we win them to Christ, we make disciples of them, eventually there'll be fewer and fewer people who will even want to have an abortion, right? We who are in the church, we need to be sensitive to those who are unwed mothers. We need to love them and to support them, to counsel them, to help them through a difficult time in their lives. We need to encourage them to keep their babies full term and ensure them that we will help them in one way or the other, after the baby is born, to help them get on their feet, help them find work, to support them in ways that will help them to be mothers of these children whom they are bearing. We need to get involved. We need to speak out. We need to educate. We need to do it without emotion. We need to do it with love. I don't need to say a lot more about that. We can get involved financially. Crisis Pregnancy Center here in El Paso. They do a beautiful job of women who come to them and they have a sonogram. They take a sonogram. They show the baby in the womb to the mother. It makes a huge difference. Many women choose not to go through with the abortion they're contemplating at no cost to those who come and help those women get ready for motherhood. We need to be supporters of pro-life. We need to be pro-life from the womb to the tomb, as I've already said. And here's one that is really near to most of us. We need to commit ourselves to a life of moral purity. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians 5.3, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality coming out of our mouths who know Jesus Christ. Not even a hint. We need to follow the word of the Lord regarding what God says about sexual expression. God created man, male, and female. He knew what he was doing. He knew for procreative purposes... It took a man and a woman. He knew for companionship, men and women need each other in love. But let's restrict that to the marriage bed. One man, one woman, no exception for life. Let's commit ourselves to that. Let's disassociate ourselves. I would never think about abortion, suggesting it or having someone I know have an abortion, and most of you here today would not either, maybe all of you. But do you know when we participate in watching movies that have heavy sexual content, when we go to the Internet and involve ourselves in pornography viewing, when we do anything that feeds the lust in our hearts, we contribute to the cesspool of sexual immorality in our country. And in a sense, we keep that cesspool swirling, and it sucks people into it. And we need to repent of that as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's probably not a person in the room who's not guilty of this in some way or another, all of us. So we're not to be like the Pharisees who caught this woman. They set her up that we read about from John 8. They take her 
to Jesus. They say Moses in the law says that a woman who's caught in adultery is to be stoned. This woman was caught in adultery. What say you, Jesus? And Jesus bends down and begins to doodle in the dirt. He stands up again. He says, let him who has no sin cast the first stone. Let him who has no sin cast the first stone. He bends back down, gets back up. He says, where are your accusers? And what does she say? They've all left, sir. He said, neither do I condemn you. Jesus Christ loves all. And he wants to forgive us of any sin that we confess to him, any sin. He's willing to do that. But he did say to her, go and sin no more. He loves us too much to condone our sin because he knows what sin does to us. It destroys us. And he wants us to trust him to take away that sin, to give us the power to live a life that will glorify him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the day. We thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that science and scripture are not in competition in this matter or any other matter because both of them give us insight into who you are. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.